What does it take to win? Hosted by track record founders David Carey and Scott Gardner. Ready again. Transforming your track record with leadership coaching. Inspired by elite performance from sports and business. On your arms. Side track from leading performers in sports and business to find out what does it take to win. Hello and welcome to the Track Record Podcast. What does it take to win is the question that we're always asking ourselves at Track Record. And we are not going to just ask that question alone today, are we, Scott? No, we have got two wonderful guests that we're going to be speaking to to find out what does it take to win in their worlds. And uh, they've certainly done a lot of winning. Scott, who we got today? David, today we've got Kerri-Ann Payne and Richard Pybus. Tell us more about those two wonderful guests. So uh, Kerri-Ann joins us from the world of open water swimming. She's a double world champion, an Olympic medalist in marathon swimming. You know, that's for 10 kilometres, that's two hours in the water. Uh, she's so out there on her own uh, <laughs> in that and offers such unique perspectives on performance. Um, and then we have Richard Pybus. Richard has had a stellar career uh, coaching for clubs and country in cricket, uh, different cultures, Pakistan, Bangladesh, South Africa, the West Indies right now. You know, he's he's travelled far and wide for a Geordie who's uh, grew up in Australia. <laughs> there we go. Fascinating to uh, start digging into that. So in terms of the format of the show, really it's... Uh, just sharing the privilege of coaching we're going to have a, a really kind of far and wide uh, conversation with you guys to find out what it has taken for you guys to win and, and how you can continue to uh, keep winning whichever field it is that you're going to choose in this week we're going to be talking about confidence uh, in relation to what does it take to win so why do you need confidence in order to be able to deliver your best performance and it's the thing that we've certainly seen both within sport and business that you absolutely have to have so we're going to explore that a little bit more today and I'm just going to throw out just a totally wide-ranging uh, question I'm going to be fascinated to see who jumps in first but uh, in your worlds, what does confidence look like? <laughs> uh, I guess I could start if you want. Uh, oh, what does confidence look like? It's quite a tricky question to answer because with elite sport, quite often you're you're used to putting on a face, a mm. face of confidence. You don't want anyone to see that you're not confident. So actually, confidence looks like... Um, for me, confidence looks like smiley, happy, actually laughing and talking to people. That's my confidence. It's not the kind of the Arnie face, as we would call it in swimming, <laughs> where you, you know, you just basically have this face on, which is I'm in the zone, I'm ready to go. And I tried that. It didn't really work very well mm. for me. So for me, confidence is being part of a conversation, talking to people, being happy. And I'm only happy because I will have been confident within what I've done with the training. So confidence is sounding like a feeling rather than a, an actual thing that you're you're putting on. Richard, you know, you, you work a lot with teams, whereas Kerry Ann's that individual performer. You're all about the dynamics of teams, getting them to be able to perform at their best, ready to win. What does confidence look like from from your seat? I think peace of mind in 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 a knowingness that your preparation is where it needs to be. Uh, you know what you've got to do, how you're going to do it. Um, and, and being very present with that. Mm. And and I think that innately comes through. I think people's body language is, is relaxed and they 
you know, they've got a good presence about them. I think you can see it on people's faces. Um, I like the comment about uh, Kerry's comment about the you know the Arnie the Arnie look, which is very manufactured, mm. you know, and that really is a product of of you know somebody thinking about what they should look like rather than you know you can see when somebody's ready. Yeah. And and what does it take to get ready to to be able to to have that kind of relaxed peace of mind that you're talking about? It seems like it's a very kind of inward facing thing rather than an external thing that that you're you're putting on. What are the things that that you can do as a leader of that team to to support people to be ready? Well, I think when you you are reverse engineering the the performance which needs to be delivered. So if it's a if it's a final, whether it be you know um, through quarters, semis, and final, um, you know, ensuring that you're first place on the podium, um, understanding what that performance looks like. Um, being very clear, having great clarity on that, understanding the metrics which are part of that, mm. um, being able to break that that uh, down into actionable, without this sounding too jargony, um, you know, action steps really, mm. you know, and small enough that that when the performer or performers are are rehearsing um, where they've got to learn new skills, is that they can be very present with that. Um, so that is learnt in the moment, mm. and and joining that all together. So if you don't have clarity on that, you know, and, and I see it a lot, and you can see it with teams that you're working when you're coaching against them, and you know it in your own sides when they are poorly prepared, and you know you have to do your learning out of it. Is um, is you can see when they are they haven't done the homework. Mm. You know, they haven't spent the time. You know, they they get caught up in 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 extraneous stuff um, mm. they get caught up in in fluff <laughs> and they they really haven't that they, they what is that what is that world championship what is that mm. performance look like and and then breaking it out really mm. what kind of stuff have you done carry on to to have that feeling so i'm going to change the word to from look to yeah. feeling of confidence what what kind of specific things have you done that Richard talks about that those kind of steps to be able to be ready. Yeah, so it was it was really probably the last four years of my swimming career where I really took that same approach where words like reverse engineering and clarity and the win and that kind of stuff were part of my vocabulary. Before that it was very much, you know, being told what to do, being, you know, trained in, in what I was doing. But when I decided I needed to look at the end in mind, and I think that's something that not many athletes do, they they think of the dream. Yes, of mm. course, I want to win Olympic gold medal. I think everyone probably wants to has a dream to win that. But I can't control exactly how that happens. What I can control is the, my performance on the day. So mm. I looked at what the performance was going to be in Rio. So this was the Rio Olympics for me. And um, what the conditions were going to be like, who was likely to be there, what their abilities were going to be. And, and then basically worked backwards from there, where, where was I on that day? So things like... Um, I wasn't really very happy being anywhere near the fighting of a pack. And if anyone's seen an open Watson before, it can be pretty rough. So I wasn't <laughs> interested in that. So my target and my goal in the lead up to the London Olympics was always to just go out in front and lead from the front. And that's exactly what I did. And it worked incredibly well for a long time. But the world was changing. People were getting faster and I was no longer able to do that. So I had to just suck it up in a way and find something I could do that was going to make a difference. So I decided to um, put myself in 
the most uncomfortable position I possibly could be. And I took a judo lesson. And the only judo person I knew at the time was a girl called Gemma Gibbons, who was an Olympic silver medalist from the London Olympic Games. And I thought, <laughs> such a great idea. I'm definitely going to do a session with her until I was stood on the mat going, what have you done? <laughs> and it was exactly that. It was it was a really uncomfortable situation. And I, I to be honest, I laughed for 45 minutes because that's also my nervous reaction as well as my confidence one, clearly. <laughs> um, just laughed for like 45 minutes, basically, while I was pinned to the ground. Um, and it was amazing having that moment, having those feelings and actually realising it wasn't anywhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. Uh, and then my very next race, it was like I was a completely different person. My very next race after that, we decided I was going to start as I normally would do out in the front. And I dived in, started at the front and then got out about 200 metres, turned onto my back and let everyone swim over the top of me, which was not something I would have done ever. <laughs> they all swam over the top of me. I was churned out the back of the pack and then I started to spend the rest of the lap getting back to the front. Got back to the front, swam in the front for about 200 metres, turned on my back, let everyone swim over the top of me again. So that was one part of the of the step that I needed mm. to do, but it actually did a lot for me. And it already instantly, that first sort of year I tried that, grew that feeling of confidence that I kind of have mm. um, in the background and it started to make it so much easier and then I was able to learn other things and new things as we went on. Mm. It sounds as though you had to be very present for these new skills, Kerry ann and I'm getting the sense that neither of you, when we've asked about confidence, are talking about outcome, talking about score, talking about winning or losing. Mm. You're actually talking about process mm -hmm. and you know, as Richard said, the action steps and homework and, you know, putting these things into action and taking control of yourself. Yeah, definitely. It was very much a different way of looking at things for me as, you know, having a career of sort of 10 years before that of kind of just doing what I was told quite a lot. Um, and it worked really well for a long time. Like I said, it, it worked well because in the open water world, we were, the Great British team were, revolutionized it essentially we came from the pool into the open water and there was no one else really doing that at the time so what we did was took our speed and our um you know the racing skills that we had in the swimming pool into the open water and it completely changed the whole sport i mean three of us that went to the beijing olympics which was the first time it had been in the olympics all won a medal all three of us swam in the pool and all three of us won a medal two silvers and a, and a bronze from that one olympics there was only three of us in the team so 100 percent strike rate was seriously impressive mm. for an Olympic Games. And then what we did was we spent the next year, the next four years in the lead up to London, essentially just trying to be better than everyone else, trying to train harder, trying to swim for longer, trying to, you know, outsmart everyone else. And it worked most of the time. But then, you know, what we stopped doing was thinking about the end goal. We started thinking more about how I could make myself quicker and stronger and faster and better rather than thinking about actually what the steps I was taking, were they actually contributing to the performance from I today. needed? Yeah. Like exactly. think about it from today as opposed yeah. to a forward mm -hmm. thinking outside in perspective of, you know, of the things that are going to actually allow you to win versus the things that today look like I might be able to do a bit better. It's yeah. interesting. I'm so, going to jump in. Yeah, I, I want you to. <laughs> I was going to throw you towards things. Yes. Uh, I was fascinated to hear that the, the amount of thinking and preparation and practicing and preparing that goes into being able to deliver that kind of end performance. Um, but I'm also on the flip side of that thinking about, I think it was Mike Tyson said that you can have a great plan, but it all changes when you get punched in the face. So 
how how can you um, prepare for the stuff that you just do not expect? So I, I'm thinking about you know some of the the team sports that that you've been involved in. You can do all the preparation, but if you if a team goes into a situation that they've never been in before, that they haven't prepared for, how how can you um, how I guess what teams have you seen that have been able to deal with that really well, and and why have they been able to do it where other teams haven't? I think as as a coach and somebody who's um, overseeing a high performance program, is um, you need to have a depth of experience. You know, you can't microwave it. You need to have been through the ringer, and to have literally you know, be able to identify every possible scenario which can take place and then let your imagination go and and then invent some, hmm. um, you know, because particularly I'll, I'll use an example of um, of one of the sides I was working with. It was, it was Pakistan in the 99 World Cup and we played brilliant cricket all the way through... Um, Comfortably beat New Zealand, I think, by nine wickets in the semi-final. Um, the the running into the final, um, there was some a change in focus in the team. Um, you know, now how are you going to manage the scenario? And on the day of the final, uh, to cut to the chase, on the day of the final, uh, the dressing rooms at Lords are pretty small. They don't hold much more than just your squad and a couple of support staff comfortably. And and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, is there is a bunch of board officials sitting in the dressing room, <laughs> which which you know completely changes the dynamic. Um, you know the players now don't have their own space. Mm. Now they're being observed, and you know there was there was quite a few of them, and and it was okay. Well, let's 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 look at the worst case scenario. Having done all of the work to get to the World Cup final on the day of the final, your your player space is now being compromised. And mm. and and it just and the dominoes have started falling prior to that, but then it just and all the rituals and the routines that you've set up to 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 automate them to make sure they just roll on automatic on yeah. on finals day, and now they've they've gone, and and so those experiential things is um, of just yeah is well, what are the weirdest things that can happen? But then having having a variety of options that you can just manage yourself for whatever takes place. Mm. So forget about what the worst case scenario is, is that you've got that quiet space where, where whatever happens, it's cool. You mm. know? Your, your training is there, you can trust your training and you can deliver your training. Mm. It was uh, Daniel Kahneman that um, put together, I think was one of the first to put the, the pre-mortem name to that kind of being really negative about all the things that could really mess you up and then being able to put a plan in place. And I think you did something similar into to Rio, didn't you, Carrie Ann? Yeah, that was the start of my process, really, was kind of, I had to look at not only where I wanted the performance to be in Rio, but all the things that could happen in the lead up to that. And it was everything. It started off with one A4 piece of paper and it turned into two that I had to glue together because kind of the list grew. <laughs> and it was things like, um, what if my goggles came off? What if they got hit off? What if I got hit in the face? What if this happened? What if my costume ripped? Which, you know, some of these things had happened or I'd heard them happen. Someone had had their nose broken and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, how can I deal with all these different scenarios? And it was just this massive big list of what if in the middle of it literally it was what if big spider diagram and I spent ages on it trying to make sure I could think of absolutely everything that could go wrong if I had food poisoning if I um 
you know, if I'd lost my feeds during the swim, what, what was I going to do? So, and then essentially worked from then. It was, it then became a checklist and it was, can I put myself in these situations? So I had a year out of competitive swimming and what we did was essentially try to put myself in, um, in those situations. So although I wasn't training 10 times a week, 70,000 meters every single week, I was training three times a week and I traveled the world and did races that I had never done before, never got the opportunity to do, but were really competitive and, just so different to what I was used to because I would just fall straight back into my usual routine and uh yeah and I started ticking them all off and we got to probably a year out from from Rio and I'd ticked most of those boxes off until we got to Rio uh for the test events this was exactly a year a year in advance we thought we'd planned everything um going we're swimming in the Copacabana beach it's in Rio it's in Brazil it's in the summer you know, one thing that certainly wasn't on my mind was the water being cold. Um, but the test event, the water was 16 degrees, like 16.2. And the, for the boys, about 15.8, which is cut off territory. If it's that cold, we don't swim. That races get cancelled. And six foot waves, which I love. And that was part of kind of my dream scenario would be that be six foot waves. But the cold, I was terrible in and I was so worried about that. So what we then had to do was add to add more to the list. And cold, what do we do with this? How do we do that? And then we set about yeah. um, doing something about it and went down mm -hmm. to uh, Portsmouth and did some work with Mike Tipton down there, who's the world leading expert in that kind of stuff in cold water training. And yeah, I ended up coming out being super confident that actually I can deal with the cold really well. My body deals with it really well my mind didn't <laughs> I thought being cold was the end of the world for me but actually it ended up being so it ended up being really good so what I hoped and absolutely dreamed of for my Rio 2016 Olympic race was that it was absolutely freezing and about six foot waves again but unfortunately it wasn't meant to be it was about 25 degrees and flat as a pancake but <laughs> I guess but you'd plan for it and, and it's really interesting when you go back to your initial answer to what confidence looks like it's um it, it's fascinating to hear that you were willing to be really negative really pessimistic in your performance and because of those things you were able to generate confidence whereas some people might say don't be negative mm. just you know wish it to be right and and be confident and have confidence and look confident and and actually what you're saying is the complete opposite in order to gain confidence you had to face those fears and be pretty negative yeah i think actually and it maybe it's just the british culture but i think we're actually really good at being negative we are really good at being negative everyone loves being negative but not necessarily about themselves and what things can go wrong everyone just kind of puts their head in the sand and doesn't think about it too much so it was actually quite a nice feeling um and i don't anyone to do it for whatever challenge you've got mm. is sit down and actually think about what is the challenge and, and work out all the things that could go wrong way I would way rather be prepared for something that goes wrong and I have a plan for it so you know I, I guess you can't always guess that somebody's going to be in the in the changing rooms with mm. you but you know what are the things to that mm. and, and to me you know one of the things that I ended up doing was I I'm not superstitious at all and I'm the most forgetful person ever so there was no routine for me didn't follow a routine because I would forget it and if I forgot it then it probably would have been the end of the world so yeah being really negative is is actually a really good thing because it leads into so much more after that where you can genuinely be confident in the preparation that you've done in the lead up to whatever your challenge is. Mm. I'm getting a real sense from both of you about all this performance planning piece the end the win, what's got to be done, what's going to get in our way. And I'm interested to sort of switch it a little bit with you, Richard, into team identity. 
and team purpose and 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 your thoughts on its contribution to confidence yeah i think there's a look confidence is just a word really and you know we can see when somebody's got it you can see when a team's got it you can see when they haven't um you know when we start to talk when we start to talk about purpose it 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 you know it's a it's a much deeper concept in the sense that it becomes more about who we are as people and what we stand for and what we believe in and um you know i'm a i'm a great believer and is that without this getting too esoteric or or religious or whatever but ultimately it's about what we are in terms of uh, our spirit and what, what what being human is and 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 how we manifest that in our performance how we create that and when we when we go a little bit deeper than just the superficiality of that's a sport and we're out playing the sport and how that is embodied and and being true to that uh, that comes from a much deeper place and confidence to me is when we're talking about you know, when somebody's got it or they haven't got it, I think we are innately confident. We are innately resilient. And I think what gets in the way of that, and when you look at young children, you know, is before they've learnt not to be confident, mm. um, is that they all are. You watch them running around. They've got the joy of life in front of them, you know, and if they trip over and they bang their heads or whatever, you know, they might cry for a couple of minutes and then bang, they're off and they're doing it again, you know, and they're full of joy again. And I think that that is our innate state. And a lack of confidence is learnt, mm. you know. And so, uh, you know, your observation, Carrie-Anne, about, 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 you know, how a different culture might see that is that, I, you know, I think that's very accurate, you know. And I think in, in, in uh, growing up in England is that, and I know it's, uh, they call it the tall poppy in Australia, you know, don't be better than other people, um, is I, I think there is a sense of that sometimes in 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 um, society, you know, maybe we get we pick it up from parents and friends and extended family or whatever from coaches. Is um, so going back to your question, Scott, about about purpose is I think it's I think it is the root, it is the core of all, even whether people acknowledge it or not, is when they is that's that that is that knowingness. Have you been in teams that don't have purpose? Yeah. Big time, and um, and you can see it. And there's a superficiality there. There is a, there is a. You know, you've got it is it is egos just operating, trying to be as individual as they can. You know, who's the biggest dog in the room? Who's got the biggest bark? You know, who's the <laughs> alpha? Um, and and it's not a team environment. It's not a common purpose. It's not serving the goal. It's not serving the team. Um, it really is about me, myself, and I. And then when you get a group of those individuals who are competing egotistically to be to to be the biggest um, within a team, is that it, you know it is a contradiction in terms. You don't have a team. You know, you've just got a group of individuals in a room. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And 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 that purpose, of course, is so important when when you're embarking upon a pit mission. I mean, your mission, Karen, was four years, and the thought of doing all those things you know it sounds like such conscientiousness that you need throughout that whole process um what was your purpose like why why on earth were you going through you know facing jellyfish sharks the lot (laughs) and not only that but judo champions as well for goodness sake like what what was the purpose behind it all 
Well, for me, it took a while for me to really understand what my purpose was. And the reason it took a while was because when I first stepped into swimming, it wasn't exactly where my heart was. I thought my heart was in the pool and that's what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden I went from eight and a half minutes to in the pool in a lane to two, two hours outdoors in the open water uh, with jellyfish and all sorts. <laughs> and I thought, really? Is this really what I've decided I'm doing now? Um, but along the way, I really... I started to love it and because um, it was the first time that the open water had been in Beijing at the 2008 Olympic Games, no one really knew what it was. So what I had discovered coming back home was that a lot of people watched the race. They thought it was really exciting. They um, they really got behind us and all of a sudden things started to, to fall into place that more and more people were doing this. More and more people were coming to me and saying, oh, I watched you in Beijing and actually I started doing a bit of open water swimming. And I realized that, that was, those were the moments I was getting the biggest kick out of, mm. actually, was people saying things like that. Leading up to the London Olympics, you know, 30,000 people came to Hyde Park to watch the open water. 30,000 people were standing around the Serpentine watching open water swimming, which was just mind-blowing. The noise was something I will absolutely never forget. It was just mm. absolute goosebumps moment. And I'm so glad I let myself take a second to listen and hear it. Um, and then since then as well, I mean, the number of people that have messaged me or uh, I go to different open water events and they're there and they're saying, you know, I've done, you inspired me to get into the open water. And what I realized was that's why I do it. This is 100% why I do it. I want to inspire as many people as I possibly can into the open water because because of the love of it. I love it so much now. I love the freedom of it. It's different. It's, you know, there's no lane lines there's no fast lane slow lane to navigate through it's <laughs> no just tumble turns. no tumble turns yeah it's just this freedom and and that's really what it was so once I acknowledged that that was why I was doing it and it it wasn't you know I mentioned earlier that everyone dreams of being an Olympic gold medalist and I still dream of being an Olympic gold medalist it's never going to happen but I still dream of that but the reason why I got up in the morning, the reason why I swam through jellyfish, the reason why I did a judo lesson was because I wanted to inspire more people to do that. And, you know, the way I was going to do that and lead up to Rio was to make sure that I was on the podium. If I was on the podium, I was hopefully going to get two more people and speak to more media, get more people excited. So in order to get on the podium, I had to make sure I had all my training in place. So actually, I started training harder and, and longer and faster mm. and it wasn't because I needed to train harder long and faster it just I was so excited to do it and I'm so determined to do it that every day was easy to go you know people ask me how do you get up 5am every morning mm. it was super easy because I genuinely wanted to make sure that I did as well as I could in Rio because I wanted to stand in front of as many people as I could and get more and more people mm. involved in it so for me my purpose is still even now with um having made the transition from pool to well from sport into business it's still to inspire people to take up open water swimming mm. and, and it sounds like you've been able to um, do what many athletes and, and many other people have been able to do which is distinguish between a purpose and a win and so often certainly in the world of business that, that we come across that, that people believe that their purpose is a tangible thing it's a moment in time that they're trying to 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 get or to gain or to achieve and the danger with that is if they achieve it or not at the other side of it they're purposeless mm -hmm. and all of a sudden not having a purpose is you know goes right back to to what you were talking about there that that kind of concept of well, you don't have a team, you don't have a thing, you don't have a central belief to, to actually get you out of bed in the morning. And I, I, I'm still intrigued how 
you know, Carrie-Anne realised that along her journey that that was her purpose. How do you do that within a team? How do you, you know, is there a moment in which the team goes, aha, we have found our purpose and, and on we go? Is, does it develop over time? What have you experienced, Richard? So the performance is designed, you know, um, you know the, the, the performance you've got to deliver on finals day. Um, the performance that you've got to deliver over a championship to ensure there's consistency to be able to win the championship. That's all, that's designed and it's the understanding and, you know, um, and your performance becomes the vehicle, really, to be able to achieve the goal. The, the, the congruity of getting everybody on that journey is you really do. You've got to take it down and you've got to strip it back and it's, what are we about? You know, what do we stand for? You know, if you've got a, if you've got a, you know, it, it's not an individual sport like Carrie Ann. You know, she's standing there on the block, or mm. you know, but the, she's about to begin a ten k swim. Um, you know, where she's managing her mind, and, <laughs> and I'll let you unpack that one later. <laughs> but, but as a team, is um, it's really, you know, what are we about? What do we stand for? What are our beliefs? You know, our goals are there. I mean, the, the goal's simple: it's to win. Mm. And and. And I think one of the fascinating things is that no two teams are the same. You know, wherever you are, you could be have two groups of people in two different rooms, but the rooms are next to each other. They are going to be unique. And that is because they are the sum total of all the thinking within that room and those personal experiences. But I think there's a commonality there. And I found this in traveling around co coaching in different cultures is that beyond the culture is there, there is the universality of, of our humanness. You know, our love for what we do, um, it, and it, and it, of how that, of, of of bringing that together, and those principles are all the same. You know, there's, there needs to be an integrity and an honesty and a, and a way that we work together and a respect in that, and that's got nothing to do with what the outside of the person looks like. That is how we are as human beings, and mm. and 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 really just clarifying clarifying coming coming back to you know if that's the goal how are we going to work together how are we going to serve each other you know how are we going to ensure that we work for each other collectively and and make sure it is about us rather than me can i ask a question mm. go for it i'm just wondering if you work like do you spend time working on that yeah. with the team so yeah. is that the beginning of that is the beginning the season that's the beginning you work that on is that. the beginning and you need to you need to you know at the, after any season, once you've unpacked the season and and and, um, and everybody's had a bit of breathing space and you know gone away and come back and you start your preparation and the planning of the new season is you know so the beginning of every season is different as well and and everybody's changed you know and if you've won the expectations have all changed you've got to manage that if you haven't won you've got to manage that <laughs> and. And so is, is again just being present because you're only ever in that moment, mm. and and it is and it's and and particularly with a new team is you got to pay you got to spend time doing that because if you don't do that and really iron out all the issues around it and get that get that commonality is that is that the 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 trip wires and the obstacles and the roadblocks just come up one after another until you actually resolve them. Mm -hmm. Fascinating that it's the beginning of every season as well. I think that's mm. and, and I'm getting a sense that these are really values. These provide your guardrails, or they and they change. 
Well, I, I discriminate between values and yeah. what I would call principles because, you know, you can have a bunch of crooks and they get together and they've got a set of values. Yeah. You know, they can have, a, you know, they can be, uh, you know, they can have their own honesty. Yeah. But I think there they is... They don't put them up around the gym, though, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the, 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 you know, when you strip it back, it is, the, is what are our principles, our universal principles as humans? Yep. You know, at the centre of that is love. Yeah. And it's a love for 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 what we do and who we are and 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 you know loving self and loving other and the rest of it. The bottom line is it boils down to love, and out of that, at the centre of that is our purpose because we can only be authentically who we are. Now, if it's a bunch of cricketers in a room, you know they're typically there because they love playing cricket, mm. and and you need to keep the playing cricket bit the centre, mm. you know. And and Kerry Ann, you know, you're talking about when you when you migrated from the pool to open water, and you were questioning, it and then you found that you fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. You know, is there? It's right in the middle of that. So a lot of the people listening into this will be thinking, "That sounds amazing. I wish I was involved in that kind of environment. <laughs> I wish I could pick up a cricket bat or or dive into an open water." But actually, my reality is very different. I've got a whole bunch of people within my team or within my organisation that, that don't have that love, that, that don't have that same passion and drive and clarity. Um, what on earth do I do as a leader of a business to, to develop that? What is it that I can do to be able to um, develop that kind of sense of purpose, that identity that um, you've both been talking about, that kind of clarity in the win? What can I do? Well, I think it's it's getting people on board. I think that's what we're we're saying. I guess something I never mentioned earlier was that I created this list of what ifs, and in order for me to do them, I couldn't do it on my own. I needed to create a team around me, so I had to kind of create a compelling enough story for people to want to join me. Mm. Um, and I had to do that in whichever way I could. So it was getting the best physio, getting the best sports scientists, getting the best coaches on board to join me on that journey. And the only way I was able to get them to join my journey was because... I knew what my purpose was and um, what the ultimate kind of goal or end goal was and got them involved in it and got them talking. And I think quite often you hear stories and you see things in the paper about, you know, CEOs not really connecting with the organisation. And yes, you've got a receptionist and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying you need to take the receptionist for breakfast every week or something, but it's the conversations, it's getting them involved and exactly why you're doing it, what's the purpose of the company, what's their role within that and that's how it worked for me I had to get the sports scientist to realize what her role was within my performance and it was you know it was a few different things and and she had to buy into it and give me input and all that kind of stuff so it was being open and honest enough to talk to people about what it is that you ultimately want to do mm, mm. that's what I think anyway yeah and and the same with you Richard I mean you, you'll have an army of people involved in supporting the performance some you know, all the way through to the dressing room at the, you know, the final, but others just kind of intermittent, intermittently coming in and out. How do you support them to be able to be part of the journey rather than just kind of feeling like an add-on? Yeah, if I can just take one step back, going back to when you were speaking about, you know, CEOs listening to this with, with you know, Maybe people are turning up to work. They've been sat on the tube or the the train or the bus or whatever, and they and they turn up and you know everybody's in their own little world and come with their own challenges. Is that I don't think it's any different. 
You know, I think that that human connection of how people are treated, how people are respected, how they're engaged, how they're involved, and I think that that allowing people to co-collaborate in the 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 designing how goals are achieved is, um, I think that's where the magic takes place. And when people have, when people are respected and allowed to be part of that, is is you know, they they can bring themselves to it. Otherwise, it really is. It's just a humdrum job and I've got to go and grind out eight hours and the rest of it. And when that when that humanness is respected and nurtured is is you get everything of, of people, you know? And to like when Carrie Ann speaking about the swimming, you know, I'm just listening is enthusing, you know? And it, it's so authentic. And then we pick up, you know, it's, 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 um, it's like it pollinates. Mm. And... You know, that's what inspiring leadership is about. It's not about telling people what to do. It's about having a, a you know, it may be that a factory needs to produce something. It may be that an organization's got targets to achieve. It is, and it may not be that that um, it looks like it's particularly exciting. But when you are part of co-creating and delivering that and, and um you know, having to work through it. And I think the work is the fascinating bit is that, is that if you can only deliver it in nine months' time of actually staying present with that and managing all the challenges, and that's, you know, you, you have your rough days and you clarify the goal again and you find new solutions mm. like you did with having to flip over on your back and let, you know, while you're preparing for those, you know, taking yourself out of your comfort zone. It's, that is, that's where the really exciting stuff takes place. Mm. What's your experience, Scott, working within um, the business world when you've seen it almost as Richard's described there? What kind of things have happened to enable that to take place? I, I think one of the biggest things that we see is, is not enough work up front. Not enough of these conversations up front. Not enough of it is I'm busy today and therefore you know not taking the time out. And I think... Um, there is a different by 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 spending the time up front by having the conversations about the clarity of what you're trying to achieve by having the conversations about the you know the humanness mm. within the team and why we're all here mm. to achieve it for the bad days because the bad days are going to come down the back end that time you if you if you prioritize it and spend it up front those are the teams we see that handle those bad days, mm. that can have the performance conversation halfway through the thing when it's not going well, and it's not a personal conversation. They're talking about the facts. They're not bringing their opinions. They're, you know, they're they're, they're bringing value-added things to the conversation, and it doesn't become personal. Yeah, um, and spend it up front. Yeah, it pays back in the back end. It it really does, and and it's. So interesting to think where we started this conversation, which was Kerry Ann saying, you know, me asking, what does con uh, confidence look like? And you said, it's not an Arnie face, it's not a mask, it's not put on. And so often that's where the starting point in the corporate world is. It's, you know, I'm turning up to work, I'm going to put my suit on, and I'm going to be very professional. And there's this kind of facade. And it's not until it's broken down that people really do start talking about, actually, I'm a little bit worried about this thing that's coming up. And, and should we talk about that? Mm -hmm. and, and talking about the inhibitors to performance, um, rather than kind of putting on the, the macho um, view that, that so often that we see. 
and that focus on the outcome versus the things that we can input, the inputs that we've talked about here today. I just, just, you know, I'm really getting a sense of that. We didn't once, or you guys didn't once, go to confidence comes from the score, the share price, the the things that are out there. They'll they'll impact, I imagine. Um, but they, if we can get a you're living that life, you're living this spiral of mm. one day great performance, one day next, you know, whereas then it's not a sustainable way Definitely not. to I operate. Totally agree with that. When I hadn't, when I wasn't kind of in that purpose, you know, we'd go training and, and one day we'd have a session and one week it would go incredibly well. And, you know, you'd be like, woohoo, going to win the Olympics. Yay. <laughs> and then the next week you do yeah, the same yeah. session again and then you have a bad session. You're like, oh, that's it. I might as well quit. There's no point. And I'm not even kidding you. It was week to week, week to week, week to week, week to week, where if the only goal you ever had was to win an Olympic gold medal, and that's the only focus that you thought that was your purpose, the reason why you're on this planet was to do that, the highs are good, but inevitably there are far more lows than there are highs, and the lows are just horrendous. They're so, so horrible. So if your goal or you think your purpose is this big thing that's really not we're out with your control. I think that's probably the hardest thing is it's out with your control. You can't control what anybody else is going to do. So making sure that you know what your purpose is and, and how you can like genuinely contribute towards that um, going forward. So then from then onwards, it was a case of the sessions I did was it was leading into the next bit, leading into the next bit, leading into the next bit. It wasn't so much like a roller coaster of emotion of, yeah, woohoo, high fives all around. Very good. I mean, it's just fascinating to hear that story and... and I mean, it's just a, a perfect example of you being able to focus on what you can control is, is sounds like the source of confidence, true confidence, rather than this kind of fake um, veneer confidence that, that we've been speaking about today. Um, Richard, what for you would be the, the key takeaways uh, that, you, that you've had during this uh, conversation? I think the... The design of of the performance, you know, I don't think you know if you if you look at, uh, at Carry On in the Pool, it is. I'm going to sound like I'm mixing my metaphors here, but it's a stage. It's a performance. You know, the performance is in water, but it's mm. that's the domain of the performance. Same same on a field, same on a tennis court, same in the boardroom. You know, I you know I've had to report for. A, to the board for many years and you know you've got the directors the the um the um non-executives etc and um and you know you see the c-suite there and they've got to turn up and they've got to perform an account to the board and and you know you've got your deliverables and your targets and ultimately it really is number one you've got to be really clear on what you what the performance looks like i'm not talking about individually in the in the boardroom but i'm using that business analogy because that's who we're speaking to is that is that you know what's taking place within the industry understanding that what you've got to deliver you know what are the targets that have got to be met uh, distilling that down making sure that your teams are on board with that, but being so clear on that because then there is a beautiful simplicity to that because going back to what Scott was saying, is if you know when, it, when you're really clear on what it looks like, you can get really clear on what you need to do. And then 
and the integrity of the way that you work with people and, and what Carrie Ann was just saying about, you know, not getting stuck in that sort of up down spiral is that when you're very clear about what you're who you are and what you stand for, it doesn't matter if you've had a bad day because it's just sport. You know, if you've had a if you have a, a poor day, if you have a tough day, you know, at the at the board meeting and the rest of it, you know, it was just a tough day in the board meeting, you know, and at the end of the board meeting is life goes on and, you know, is 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 that we can come back to our centre. You know, it isn't about the outcome. Scott, what have you taken from this incredible conversation? We've gone pretty deep in moments as well, haven't we? Uh, I don't think I've gone as deep, David, as I maybe <laughs> could have gone. Um, I love that concept of the design of the performance, and it's, you know, it's, you know, I, I've taken these two things that are, you know, it kind of is there for me, and it is this whole point on performance planning, what is the win, and how are we going to get there as either a team or group of people, or even carry on in an individual sport, bringing a group of people with me. It's about people and, mm. and, and having them know their contribution to that performance. So I've taken that from it. Um, and I've taken this other thing, you know, here around purpose. Um, and, you know, what do we stand for? What's our identity? What do we, you know, and do we own it? Do we believe in it? And is that going to help us get out of bed on the bad days to achieve the things that we set out to achieve? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to, to hear the, the consistency in two very different arenas, completely different. One's sport, one's um, swimming. Sorry, one's cricket, one's swimming. One's an individual sport and one's a team sport over a whole season. You're over like a two-hour event. And yet the preparation to be able to deliver that performance seems so similar. And, and certainly the things that I've heard a lot of in terms of to, to answer our initial question, what does it take to win? Well, actually sitting down at the beginning to work out what is that win in the first place and being really clear about what that win is, design the program, the performance in order to deliver that win based on actually being negative and just actually going, you know, what's going to get in our way? And there's a whole bunch of things that are going to come from that. But it's there's the, a, a deeper level to it, which is how are we as humans going to be able to actually deliver that performance? How are we going to get up for it? How are we going to deal with setbacks? And ultimately, that kind of that 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 sense of purpose. Why are we here? What do we really, to use your word, what do we love? What's the common love between us to be able to deliver the, this performance? And uh, it's fascinating to to be able to to spend this time with you guys to. To be able to uh, pick out those those key moments, privilege. a real pr- privilege, real privilege. Scott, final words. Uh, final words as you throw to me there, David. <laughs> as I thought you were wrapping us up. Um, I, I really just to thank you to you guys um, in terms of you know everywhere we go, working with people, working with teams, these common things come out. And it really doesn't matter. It seemed to matter whether you're in business or whether you're in sport, that actually all experiences of working with people on the journey where they're on it and they're sharing the buzz together and they're feeling the excitement of trying to achieve things as people and know their contribution to it, then that's why we're here. That is why we're here. Thank you, everyone. Kerry Ann Payne, double Olympic. Uh, no, sorry. What? What's? I'll do that one again. <laughs> Cut that one out. Dave, David, Kerry Ann, Kerry Ann, David. Um, 
Mrs. Carey. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us on uh, our podcast here. What does it take to win? Kerry Ann Payne, uh, double world champion and Olympic medalist. Richard Pribus, uh, cricket coach extraordinaire across a variety of uh, different teams and cultures. We've had a, a real privilege insight to your world and, and uh, really start to understand what it takes to win. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we look forward to uh, sharing more insights from elite performers from sport and business on the next podcast. Podcast.